Okay, let's get into God's Word. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. So take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible handy, you can follow along on the screen or you can turn on your Bible, which is on your phone. And we would love to get into God's Word this morning. Acts chapter 2 in verse 37. Let's all stand as we get our aerobics in this morning. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. What does Jesus have for us today? Here's what the Word of God says. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Will you say verse 39 with me? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words, the words, you don't have to follow along now. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. Here's the question. Is there such thing, is there such a thing as a perfect church? All right. Here's what I want you to know though. If you find one, Please do not join it, <laughs> for you will ruin it. <laughs> so I went to artificial intelligence and I asked the chat GPT machine, is there such thing as a perfect church? And, and I read it and literally it was a sermon. Like I thought about preaching it today. <laughs> it was incredible. But at the end line, here's what it said. It says, it's important to note that no church is perfect in an absolute sense because it is made up of imperfect individuals. Even ChatGPT knows the truth. Do you realize that no one's perfect here? But everyone is welcome here because through Jesus, anything is possible here. See, there is no perfect church because there are no perfect people but there is a perfect savior and his name is Jesus. And we are called to follow him wherever he leads. And, and even though we may not be perfect, he is perfect and we are to pursue what he wants. And there is a desire in all of our hearts to want to belong to something bigger than us. And that's why we gather together as a faith family to be a part of that thing which is bigger than us. And that is the vision of the kingdom of God. 
And here as a church, as a a local outpost of the kingdom of God, we have a vision, a vision that is not birthed in just my heart or in the staff's heart or the leadership's heart, but it's birthed in the word of God. And that is, is that our vision is to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that raises up the next generation of disciple makers, church planners, missionaries, and world changers that reaches Naples to the nations. That's something that God has called us to do. See, that vision is really born out of the tension between what is and what we know will be. See, we have a deep conviction. That deep conviction is based on the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. We have a vision that there will be a day in which before the throne of God will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout all generations. We believe that. And we also are deeply dissatisfied with living in a broken, fallen, divided world. And so today we talk about vision. If you're new to church, maybe this is your first time ever, this is gonna help you understand what we're really all about. If you've been here all your life, this is to reaffirm what we are all about because we are a vision-focused church and that's what we strive to be. One person said that vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. See, we long for the day that Southwest Florida is reached for Jesus Christ. We long for the day where the state of Florida and the United States follows Jesus. We long for the day that the nations worship the Lord. We long for the day in which the next generation takes the mantle of following Jesus and changes the world. We long to see the day that the sun never sets on the ministries of our church and we are convicted that the mission is worth the sacrifice. And so today we are continuing in our study. We've looked at what a spirit-empowered church is, a gospel-saturated church now, what a vision-focused church looks like. And Acts chapter two tells us what took place on the day of Pentecost. Now again, if this is your first time here, uh, the day of Pentecost was originally a Jewish festival. It was kind of like a Mardi Gras, the Oktoberfest for for Israel in the first century. Uh, It was a a day in which people from all over the known Roman world would come and descend on the city streets of Jerusalem. And it was that day, the day of Pentecost, that God chose to light the flame of the church. The church would be birthed on the day of Pentecost and it would be formed and it would grow. And so as we end chapter two, we see that Luke gives a a description of what the early church looked like, what a spirit empowered gospel saturated church looks like. And what you see is that the early church didn't just go to church. They were the church and they weren't a perfect church. They were an imperfect church, but God used these imperfect people to do something amazing. We are here today because of their faithfulness, because of their focus on the vision. And so, in summary, this message is this. A vision-focused church is committed to a clear and compelling forward-looking direction based on the promises, principles, and purposes of God. Now, let's unpack that. The promise that empowers our vision. How can we know that we will be able to fulfill what God has given us? What seems to be an impossible task, how do we know it's possible? Well, in verse 37, Peter has preached a message to these believers, I mean, to these people that are there on the day of Pentecost. And and the, the people ask the question, what shall we do? 
They were cut to the heart. They, they heard the message. And sometimes, you know, you come to church and it's like, it's like the preachers reading, have been reading your mail. And, and, and sometimes I have people say, Pastor, there's a room full of people and I feel like you're talking straight to me. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit of God. And when God speaks to you specifically, it cuts you to the heart. And so here, they heard the message and it cut them to the heart. Because before this, they didn't really think about Jesus as being anything special. Just like the old hymn, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. But when Peter told them that Jesus lived a perfect life for them, that Jesus died a substitutionary death instead of them, and that Jesus rose from the grave to deliver them even though they didn't deserve it, their tune changed to my conscience felt and owned the guilt that plunged me in despair. I saw the sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. And so they were cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? And Peter's like, that's a great question. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is turn from your way and surrender your life to following Jesus' way. The baptism is an outward sign. It's an outward sign of an inward change. So just as Tom was baptized, that didn't wash any of his sins away. Going under that water and coming out of that water doesn't take one iota sins away. Like that water is not like dirty water when you get out of it. What it is is a public profession that you were buried with Christ and that you rise to walk in a newness of life. It doesn't save you, but it shows the world that you are saved. And I've had some people say, well, pastor, you know, I've been, I've trusted Christ as my savior, but I've never gone public with that. Well, there are some issues there because listen, outside of the thief on the cross, the Bible does not recognize any unbaptized believers. That's why baptism is that first step. And so Peter says, repent, turn from your ways and turn to Jesus. And what will happen is you will have your sins forgiven. Blessed is the man and the woman whose sins are forgiven. How many of you say, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me of my sins? Amen? Praise the Lord. My sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins not in part, but the whole were nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, all of your sins have been forgiven and that you receive the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. You have a renewed relationship, a restored relationship, and you've been given the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to equip and empower you to be an effective witness for Jesus. That's what Peter says. So say, Peter, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And Peter says, repent and believe, and you'll be forgiven, you'll have the Holy Spirit. And then the next question is, well, who, who's he talking to? Glad you asked, verse 39. He says, verse 39, it's for the promise. What promise? The promise that Peter just said. This isn't just Peter making stuff up. Peter wasn't just talking smack here. Peter was saying the word of God. This is a promise. This promise echoes back to centuries and centuries prior to Peter, which God made a promise to a man named Abraham. He said, I will establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring after you, an everlasting covenant. The same promise that God made in Exodus chapter six, verse seven says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. But the immediate promise is the promise of Joel two, which Peter just talked about in which verse 32 says, 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you say that with me? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a promise. Y'all trekking with me? That's a promise. And it's a promise made by a promise keeper. And God promises that he will save and forgive rebels who lay down their arms and repent. He has promised that he will forgive the most guilty and vilest of people. He has promised that he will give eternal life and his Holy Spirit to the most wicked of sinners if they surrender to him. And how do we know that's true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So then, well, who's this promise for? Verse 39, for this promise is for you and your children. It's a multi-generational promise. It's not just for you, but it's good for your kids. It's not just good for your kids, it's good for their kids. It's not just good for your grandchildren, it's good for your great-grandchildren. It's good throughout all generations, praise God, because we're here today. This promise is not only good for you and your children, multi-generational, but it's for those who are far off, it's multi-ethnic. It's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. Not just for people here and now, but for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I am grateful that this promise is not just for the Jewish people in the first century, but it's a promise for you and for me. And it's for those who the Lord calls to himself. That's multiplication. That's gospel multiplication. Now, some of you are saying, well, what does this mean the Lord calls to himself? Well, that's the elect. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? It's not November. Well, the elect, well, who are the elect? Well, those who repent and believe and surrender to Jesus. Those are the elect. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord are those whom God has called to himself. So if you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, you're elect. God chose you. But for the foundation of the world, God chose you to be his child. And you say, well, that sounds scary. No, it's not, because we don't know who the elect are. So we're gonna nominate everybody. <laughs> we're gonna tell them about somebody who can save anybody. And what he is saying is that there are multitudes of generations and ethnicities that will, be, that will have their sins forgiven and will be filled with the Spirit. Now, why is that important? Here's why, stay with me. I don't know, what's he talking about? Stay with me. That's a powerful promise. Like if National Clearinghouse came to your house, brought a big old fat check, you know what I'm talking about? And they said to you that this check is a blank check for you and all of your for future generations forever. That's a big promise, isn't it? So what here we have is Peter is making this promise and he's making this promise in the midst of a very difficult and dark situation. Because the first century Israel was pretty messed up. It was very difficult to live in. There were major geopolitical issues. There were Roman occupation. They were living in occupation. I mean, imagine if you were in Europe in the early 1940s and you were under German occupation. That was, the Roman occupation was worse than that, or at least very similar to it. They were living in intense racial tension. You think the divide in America between black and white or black and white and brown, you think that's bad? The, the Jew-Gentile tension is, was extremely worse. 
And then there was economic uncertainty and economic inequality. And so if you were to hear Peter on the day of Pentecost say that this is not only good for you, but your children and their children and their children and for every ethnicity, you would have doubted it. Promise would still be good today. But guess what? She still stands. <laughs> you know, the thing about it is there's some people that say, preacher, this world's going to hell. No, this world's coming to Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is coming to this world. <laughs> They say, well, Christianity is dying in America. And it has gone down, I'm not gonna lie. And people say, well, there's no hope and there's no future, there's nothing. But that's not true based on the word of God. Do you understand that the future of the church is as bright as the promises of God? See, it may not look the same, it may not be the same, but the promise remains the same because the one who gave the promise never changes. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he's looking at Peter. Peter just said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, uh, Jesus looks at Peter and Peter said, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. No, duh. <laughs> you are Peter. Thanks, Jesus. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise. Now he says, Peter, that's the word Petros, stone, but here's, Jesus was not saying that the church is built on Peter. Praise God. Peter had issues. He says, the church is built on the rock. Now, I'm not talking about the rock. You're welcome. <laughs> the rock isn't a personality. The, the rock isn't a program. The rock isn't a pastor or a pope. The rock is the promises of God found in the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says it's based upon these rock solid promises that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, based on the gospel that even the gates of death and hell cannot vanquish or destroy his church. See, as we as, as we as a church chase after this multi-generational, multi-ethnic promise of God, as we strive to be the church that personifies the reality of those promises, we do not need to fear the future. We do not need to fear the government. We do not need to fear the culture, the economy, or even Satan himself. Because they cannot touch us. They cannot hurt us. They cannot destroy us. We should not back up, shut up, give up, or throw up. But we've got to show up, stand up, until Jesus calls us up and takes us home. Because the promise remains the same. And that's why we are a 239 church. A church that claims the promises of Acts 2.39. To be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church. And so these next few days and weeks and months and years, you're gonna hear more about a church planning network called 239 Network. That we are going to be a church planning church that plants churches in Southwest Florida, the nations for the glory of God. And what I want you to do is to commit to pray with me the promises of God. And so as you leave, you're gonna have a chance if you didn't get it already to get a, a 239 bracelet. Now we gave these out last year and the outside is kind of the same, but the inside is a little different. 
The inside has the Acts 2.39 promise. And as you're praying every day at 2.39 p.m. or a.m. if you're an early bird or you got insomnia, as you're praying, ask for God to fulfill this promise that we would be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that reaches the nations for Jesus Christ. Do you understand that we got a promise that guarantees a sucker? <laughs> it's gonna happen. Because our future is as bright as the promises of God. But that's not only the, the promises, but secondly, I want you to see the principles that inform that vision. Verse 41, Peter preaches, the spirit moves and 3,000 people are saved. Now some people say, I don't like a large church. Well, you would have hated the first one. Because <laughs> it grew from 120 to 3,120 in one service. That's what you call rapid growth. <laughs> so in one day, that happened. And then verses 42 through 47 is, is a screenshot, snapshot of what the church looked like in its infancy. Now, don't romanticize it. It wasn't a perfect church, but it was a principal church. And the early church was devoted to four principles. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And if you were to take those, two, those four things and bring them to two, you would see that the early church was devoted to gospel centrality, that the gospel was the main thing, and gospel community, that they hung out with each other. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you should do the same. Verse 42, that word devoted means to abandon everything else for that they gave themselves to. That in response to what Jesus had done for them and who they now were in him, they devoted themselves to these two things. And what are they? Number one, gospel centrality. They were devoted to, number one, the apostles' teaching. Now, it's first for a reason. Now, if you're new to church, just stay with me, okay? Christianity is a word-based faith, okay? It's not based on a person, a program, but a book. It's Bible-based. We are people of the book. The Bible is the final and ultimate authority of this church. It's not me. It's not our deacons. It's not our committees. It's the book. Spirit-filled, Gospel-saturated churches do not abandon the Bible. They read it, they study it, they meditate on it, they memorize it. They regularly gather to hear it taught, then they go home, study it themselves, and see if it's true. And then they apply those truths to their everyday lives and share those truths with others. Why is it important? Because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the... tells me so. The Word of God... The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one thing that cannot and will not change or be compromised in this church. <laughs> feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving, but our warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. All right, let me show you something. Y'all know what this is? When you think of the Bible, when you think of the gospel, I want you to think about Chick-fil-A. In 1946,
Truett Cathy opened his first restaurant. And do you understand that the Dwarf House then later became Chick-fil-A? Do you realize that they have been selling chicken sandwiches ever since? That if you go to a Chick-fil-A anywhere in America, you can always expect to get a fried chicken breast on a buttered toast bun and two pickles. My family, we have a challenge. We're gonna eat, eat Chick-fil-A in every state in America <laughs> for the glory of God <laughs> and the expansion of the kingdom, amen. <laughs> now, stuff on the outside has changed over the years, hasn't it? Like y'all know what this is? This is one from yesterday. <laughs> how you get the sandwich, how you pay for the sandwich has changed. But guess what is timeless? Guess what hasn't changed? The chicken sandwich. If you go all the way back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, how you bought this sandwich, you would have only used cash or change. Now you use an app, now you use a credit card, now you use a reversible home mortgage, okay? <laughs> That was funny. <laughs> the wrapper of this sandwich has changed over time. The drive-through has changed. Man, they know how to do it, don't they? The government can learn a lot from Chick-fil-A. <laughs> the store has changed over the years. Technology and how you order has changed over the years. But what's the one thing that stayed the same? The chicken sandwich. The word of God and the gospel is the Chick-fil-A sandwich to our church. <laughs> Methods, practices, how you get the gospel out, it changes. But the gospel doesn't change. That's why we don't worship methods here. Because methods have a natural shelf life. The package may look different but the gospel remains the same. And the gospel is the most important thing, not the wrapper, not how it's presented. Because think about this. Some of you have been in church all your life. Some of you, you're new to church. But think about just life in general. What used to be cutting edge is now obsolete. Like how many of y'all go home and listen to eight tracks? <laughs> or how many of y'all watch movies on VCRs? Or how many of y'all use those floppy disks? You don't obsolete. The gospel doesn't change because God's promises do not change. His word is the most important thing. And churches that abandon the Bible and abandon the gospel, they die. If you look at some of the mainline denominations who no longer accept the Bible as the ultimate authority, but compromise it, they're dying. And see, once you stop believing the Bible is God's word, then you stop living under its authority. And when you stop living under its authority, you embrace everything the culture tells you to embrace. And when you, in, 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 when you embrace what the culture tells you to embrace, you lose any distinction from the rest of the world. And you just become another social club, another civic organization, or group therapy. But the principle that informs our vision is gospel centrality, that the Bible and the gospel is the main thing. The second thing you see in the local church, the early church, was gospel community. Fellowship, breaking the bread, and prayers. 
The word fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia. We got our word coin from that. It's common currency. The word koinonia meant something to hold something in common. Now, growing up as a kid, they used to tell me that fellowship is an English word that meant two fellows rowing in the same ship. <laughs> that they spent a lot of time with each other. They were rowing in the same direction for the same destination. Well, that's not what that word means. <laughs> the word fellow actually comes from the English language, which is this. A fellow was one who put money down with another fellow in a joint venture. They were fellows, and they were in this fellowship because they were in a joint venture together. Well, you and I are in fellowship. We have put down our lives, our families, our money, our time, to this one venture. And so what you see, that's what the early church did. They gave themselves to each other. And what was so beautiful is this tapestry of grace is that people from different backgrounds came together under the common denominator of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And that's why when you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't so much talk about going to church as it talks about belonging to a family. So we are one big family. We just have a few weird cousins, okay? <laughs> And you know who you are. <laughs> but they spend a lot of time with each other. We don't have time to do complete exegesis of this text, but notice it says day by day. Day by day, they were together. The two words you can look at is together and day by day. Day by day, they went to places together. They ate together. They prayed together. They went to church together. They went to each other's homes. They were up in each other's lives. You had refrigerator licenses in other people's homes. You know what that is? You can walk into anybody's home, you just open the fridge and go to town. I mean, <laughs> they were that close. They broke bread. Now this could be both communion when they took the Lord's Supper, but also eating. See, to share a meal is to share a life. You know, the sign of a healthy church is not just who shows up on Sunday. The sign of a healthy church is not just who shows up and sits in here, but the sign of a healthy church is who comes over for dinner. See, the sign of a multi-ethnic church and the sign of a multi-generational church is not just people of different ethnicities and different generations coming to church together and sitting in one room singing the same songs and hearing the same sermon. That's not the sign of a healthy church. The sign of a healthy church is people from different generations and different ethnicities sitting in each other's living rooms and sitting at each other's dining rooms. See, they went to large group. They went to the temple. They went to small group. Listen, the secret sauce of the church is being involved in a group. The front line of care is in a group. This is a large church. How can you make a large church smaller? By being in a group of people, a smaller group of people. Why is that important? After COVID-19, there has been a spike in mental health crises. Depression, anxiety, Cases of suicide have skyrocketed in America. And Gallup did a survey that said, found that a 37, there's been a 37% increase of anxiety and depression in America since COVID-19. But in their study, this is not preachers, nobody made this up. This is factual study. The only group that did not see an increase in anxiety and depression were who? Those who regularly attended church. According to Gallup, people who attend church regularly smile and laugh more and tend to be less worried 
and less angry. They took care of each other. Verse 44 and 45, they, all who believed together had all things in common. And people were selling things and taking the proceeds and giving it to help people. Now, some people have taken that verse to think, well, the Bible's teaching communism or socialism. The Bible doesn't teach communism or socialism. Socialism is being generous with someone else's money with the power of the government behind you. Gospel generosity is giving of your own to meet the needs of others in a response to Jesus' generosity to you. That generosity is just an overflow. That when God's been really, really kind to you, you wanna be really, really kind to others. Has anybody ever blessed you and you've gotten something or maybe you've just made a ton of money and you just thought, you know what, I, this is so much, this is so good, I, I need to share it with someone else? The overflow of one person's kindness is kind of like if you go uh, to a, a fast food line and the person ahead of you buys your meal and then you, you, get, you get the chance and, and, and you think the person behind you and you get to buy their meal. This, the, the person's generosity in front of you gives you a desire to have generosity behind you unless you look behind you and it's like a big van. <laughs> right? Full of people. You're like, all right, Lord. So you go up to this, hey, can I pay half of theirs? <laughs> Here's a question. Now, this is, listen, this is gonna make some of you upset. And I'm not, I, I'm not doing this to make you upset. I'm doing this because I love you. How many of you are regularly giving to the ministry of the church? How many of you are regularly giving to the vision? Here's the thing. If you believe in the mission and vision of this church, give to it. If you don't, then don't. But if you believe in it but don't give towards it, then how are you gonna help fuel it and how are you gonna help fund it? You know, the average believer, regular church attender gives less than 2% to charity and they think they're generous. Now, some of you right now, like, it's your first time in church. I knew it! I knew it! The church wants my money! No, the problem is you want your money. God doesn't need your money. We don't want your money. It's not what we want from you. It's what we want for you. Because here's the deal. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And if we have any trouble around here, you know what he'll do? He'll sell a couple cows. He'll take care of us. But the problem is, is that most of us, we live our lives, we have no margin, we have no ability to do anything, and we don't live radically generous, we live incredibly stingy. So here's a challenge. If you've never given to the kingdom of God, you've never given to the church, you can give in the, in the box or online. Like I said, if you, don't wanna, if you don't believe in us here, give it somewhere else. But I wanna, if you've never given, I want you to give this. Make your first time gift, if you can afford it, $239 for the 239 promise. If you say, I can't afford it, then $2.39. Or 23 cents, and we'll figure out the point nine, okay? <laughs> Or if you can afford it, do 2,390 or 23,000. Or hey, listen, if you get real froggy, 2.3 million would be great, okay? <laughs> now listen, it's not, it's not what we want from you, okay? God will provide, he has, he has come through. This church has been high, it's been low, and God's always been faithful. And he always will be. As long as we're following his vision, he'll provide. I'm telling you. But that's what the early church did. That's a big deal. There's two verses to talk about it. Because it was a big deal. 
They took care of each other. Why? Because they were not consumers, they were stakeholders. Why should you be a part of this church? Because you believe in the church. You believe in the people around you and you believe in the vision. But ultimately you wanna be obedient to God. And, and, and listen, God is doing some amazing things in this church. And some of you say, well, pastor, well, I attend here and I go to group here and I give money here, isn't that enough? Again, this is gonna tick some of you off, but listen to this. Is it enough to live with someone, pay part of the bills and sleep together, but still not commit to marriage? See, our culture struggles with commitment. Our culture, you know why it's so broken? Because our culture is about this. It's hook up, shack up, and then break up with no strings attached. But that's not God's best. And, and listen, if you're living in a relationship like that, it's not God's best for your life. And what God's best is for your life is for you to commit to become who God wants you to become. You need to belong where God wants you to belong. And if you've been saved, then you need to belong to a local church that preaches the word of God and has a vision to reach people for Jesus. And they pray together. The early church never got over their need for prayer. When someone was in trouble, they prayed. When someone had a need, they prayed. When they got scared, they prayed. When they needed boldness, they prayed. Because prayer isn't just a tack on, prayer is the main thing. Prayer brings people together. Prayer tears walls down. Listen, it's hard to criticize somebody you're praying for. Prayer allows growth in your life. So here you have, the early church had principles. Gospel centrality, gospel community. It's the peanut butter and jelly of the church. Wax on, wax off. If all it is is gospel centrality, then you just show up, sit, listen, and leave. If all of it is is Christian community without any gospel, then you're just there for group therapy. But when you put them together, it changes everything. And that's the last point. I promise you it's not that long. The purpose that inspires division. Why do we care? Why do we want to do this? Verse 41, the result of the day of Pentecost is 3,000 people were saved. That's addition. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's multiplication. That every day something was happening. That as they were devoted to gospel centrality, as they were devoted to the gospel community, the power of the gospel and the reality of the Holy Spirit was moving in them and was moving through them. You would think it would be inward, but no, it actually became outward. That as they loved God and as they loved each other, they became attractional and irresistible. Listen, I want to remind you, God is doing some amazing things in and through this church because he's doing it in and through the lives of people. It is almost daily that we hear somebody coming to faith, coming to Christ and getting saved. It is daily we hear stories of life transformation. Do you know that in less than two years, we have seen over 578 people baptized in less than two years? <laughs> Praise God. Just listen, I, I wanted to tell you a big story, but there were so many great stories. I'm just going to tell you one big story of great stories. In the past few months, here are people who have been saved through the ministry of people like you. Linda was invited by her brother-in-law. She came to the church, gave her life to Christ. 
Rudy was working on irrigation, met some people who worked at the church. They shared the gospel, loved him, and he is a follower of Jesus Christ. Dan was volunteering for disaster relief and he was helping people muck out and God mucked him out and he got saved and his wife got saved and his daughters got saved and life has been changed. A lady named Cammie wanted to help in VBS and she got saved. A young man named Chris was playing basketball with other believers in our church and he got saved. A young man by the name of Antonio Family put him in our academy and he got saved. Philip was invited to student ministry and he got saved. Mark was invited by a friend he hadn't seen in 30 years at Publix. And the old boy came to church last Sunday and he got saved. <laughs> Elisa came to college ministry on a college night, got connected to a community of people her age that loved her and she got saved. And a dude named Robert, and you might be here, drove by our church a few weeks ago, came in, saw all these cars, got out of his car, walked in the room, heard the gospel, and he got saved. It was a drive-by salvation, praise God. In a world full of crazy, did you watch the Republican debate? in a world full of division. For there to be a group who do not look like, talk like, vote like, or think like each other, hanging out, laughing, eating, worshiping, that's attractive. See, the church makes the gospel visible. It's not just the message. The message is the most important, but it's not just the message. But it's the life that we live and the love that we have for each other and our neighbors that makes us irresistible. Everyone in this world was created for community. And when they see us living in a community like this, then they long for what we got. So let me end. Went a little long, it's okay. What do others see about you that would make them want to follow Jesus? What do others see about our church that would make them want to follow Jesus? I don't want them to follow the church. I want them to follow Jesus. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow Jesus. You know, I'm a daddy. I got three kids. We're in the middle ages, 14, 12, and 10. We need your prayers. It's hard being, I was a pastor's kid. It's hard being a pastor's kid. But I want our church, my dream is for our church, and I believe we're getting there, is that I want our church to be so irresistible, so great, that even if I didn't work here, my family and I would still want to belong here. And now I'm going to end. You know, there's a difference between Chick-fil-A and the other restaurants. There just are. There just is. It just is. I mean, they ain't that nice at Burger King. <laughs> they don't say my pleasure. <laughs> now, if you work at Burger King, we love you, okay? <laughs> and they are taking applications at Chick-fil-A, all right? <laughs> but what, but why, are they, why are they this way? You know why they're this way? And you may not like Chick-fil-A, and you may not like chicken sandwiches. 
We're praying for you. <laughs> they got a vision. You know what their vision is? To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Do you know that last year in revenue, they had $18.8 billion in sales? That is more revenue than 60 countries in the world GDP. They have 2,806 restaurants, and we thank God for the three of them here in Naples. The average restaurant makes $8.68 million. Why? Their founder, Truett Cathy, says, we should be more about, we should be about more than just selling chicken. We should be a part of our customers' lives and the communities in which we serve. Now listen, if a restaurant that sells chicken sandwiches can make that much impact on the world, how much more can a spirit-empowered, gospel-saturated, vision-focused church? Because think about it. Chick-fil-A's closed on Sunday. We're not. <laughs> See, we've got more than chicken sandwiches. We've got Jesus Christ. And what we need to be about is about getting everybody we know connected to him because he changes everything. And so I wanna ask you, would you commit to praying at 239 that God would fulfill his Acts 239 promise? And if you haven't figured this out yet, we live in area code 239. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? <laughs> would you pray this prayer? That we would be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that reaches the world for Christ. And if you're here, we're not selling a church. This isn't an MLM deal. This isn't a timeshare sales pitch. This is a message that'll change your life forever. That Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead and he will save you and you will then belong into a family that will never die. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we ask God that your Holy Spirit would do a work that you cannot, that no one else in this room can do. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a church that is focused on the vision of reaching Naples to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and let's sing.